0: A quick word before our uh, regularly scheduled program, if you will. Uh, We have noticed of late that there has been some audio issues, uh, some cutting out in the video and in the recording, Uh, particularly it's in the recording. We've been working to isolate what it is in our system that has been causing it and get that out of there. Thank you again for your patience, and we'll get that solved as soon as we can. Turn with me in those Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Looking at a split passage, verses 21 to 24, and then again verses 35 to 43. Last time we were together, Jesus was departing the region of Decapolis. The man whom he had redeemed from torment of the demons named Legion desired to follow Jesus. And Jesus denied him this, exhorting him rather to go home to his friends and to tell them how great things the Lord had done for him. He, in fact, did that, not just to to his home, but also to all the region of Decapolis. We pick up here in the text, setting the stage for the next of Jesus' expressions of authority. So we read, beginning in verse 21, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. So we see Jesus pass over by ship again to the other side. Now, last time the Bible said he passed over to the other side, he was going from Caper- Capernaum to this area, the region of Gadara. Now he passes over to the other side again. We might believe that he's coming back to that region of Capernaum once again from where he had previously come. And when he comes back to shore again, as we might expect, much people gathered unto him. This is kind of the theme, right? Whenever he's in the area, people are thronging him. That's not going to change this evening. And Mark tells us that these things happened while Jesus was near unto the sea. So he gets right there. He's he's coming, the boat's coming back to shore, and the people are there waiting for him. They're ready to go. Once again, he's a popular guy. We continue then in verses 22 and 23. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name... When he saw, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed, and she shall live. So there's a man, and this man's name is Jairus, and he comes to Jesus, and the Bible tells us that this man was one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, these rulers of the synagogue were men who presided, they were presiding officers over a board of elders who had the charge over the synagogue itself and all of the various operations of the synagogue. Uh, They were responsible for maintenance, they were responsible for order, and as I said, they were responsible for operations. Now, uh, we know that this is history, right? Jairus is a historical man, Jesus is a historical man, and the interaction between the two of them actually happened historically. But there is also unquestionably significance to this story beyond just the thing that happened. And we're going to look at this thing that happened, and the thing that happened is more fantastic than anything that has happened unto this point. But there's a little bit more going on here than just that. And the reason why we know that is because of the uniquenesses of what we find here in this account. There's a reason why we are told the things that we're told here, and one of the uniquenesses that we are told here that is not common among the interactions of Jesus and others is that we are told this man's name and we are told this man's function. His name is Jairus, and he was the ruler of the synagogue. Within the record, of almost every other interaction we do not receive the names of the people involved nor do we necessarily get their vocation or their profession we know nothing of the names or history of the man that was afflicted with the palsy we have no insight into the family of the demoniac of Gadara as a matter of fact right in the middle smack dab in the middle of this event we're going to cross a woman with an issue of blood she's just a woman with an issue of blood And we're not going to talk about that tonight. That'll be next week. But here, we have a name. Here, we have a vocation. And we can imagine that this is for a reason. Now, we are not given what that reason is, but there are some inferences that we could make by which we could presume, uh, with some measure of confidence, why it might be that the Scriptures might do this. To this point in Jesus' interactions with those of the religious class, Every interaction with the religious class to this point in Mark has been uniformly negative. We've seen them balk at his authority. We have seen him them resist his correction, them resist his teaching, and we have seen them act in jealousy toward his fame. But in Mark 5, we find that the presence of religion itself was not the problem. It was not just that the people were religious. The fact that they were religious was not the problem. The problem was not that these men were religious. The problem was that these men were faithless. Now, a ruler of the synagogue is not quite in the same class as the Pharisee or the Sadducee or or, or the scribe. But we are talking about those who were very much so devoted to the religion of their fathers. And Jairus must have been one of those. But here we find this positive interaction and you have to wonder if maybe the whole point of this was not that people could read this account, read the account in the Gospels and maybe go find that man and learn of his testimony directly. And understand from him these things so that there could be an identity of a man, so that we're not just talking about an a, 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 a ambiguous or anonymous man who, who was of uh, the, the religious authorities and yet responded well to Christ, but that this man has an identity, this man has a function. We can point to that man's identity and function and say, there were men of faith because religion was not the problem. The problem was what they did with the religion they had. The problem wasn't that they had religion. It was that they had elevated religion to be their God rather than religion's proper purpose. By God's design, religion is not an end unto itself. Religion is a means unto an end. The end being a personal relationship with God. The role of religion within the scope of the relationship with God is to erect in our lives a framework by which our frail and sinful bodies, our frail and sinful flesh, is compelled to maintain piety and obedience. Religion forms sort of guardrails along the path to a functional relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion only functions properly as it is directing us unto something more, uh, unto something deeper, unto something more substantive, namely a relationship. Religion for religion's sake, religion in the name of religion, religion as an end rather than as a means, is an idol. Religion as a means unto an end is religion in its proper place. So James defines pure religion, as we're generally familiar with, James chapter 1, verse 27, which tells us, Pure religion and undefined before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So James tells us that there are two primary functions to the guardrails of religion that are helping us, that are directing us unto the end of a proper functional relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the first of those guardrails, the first of those functional uses for religion, is that it directs us unto the care for the weak and the vulnerable to exercise generosity that Jesus Christ compels us to exercise, to give as we have been given. So the first guardrail of religion is that we exercise, we put into our lives a framework by which we are regularly compelled to help the weak, innocent, and vulnerable within our circles and within our society. And the being exercised unto the end that it directs us unto the person and the character of God himself. It directs us into relationship. And so within the, the guardrails of religion, the framework of religion, it is supposed to direct us to, to, to help the, those in need. And then the second functional purpose of religion is to keep himself unspotted from the world. To protect one from the deceits of the world, which First John says are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, to help us as we walk through life, to to help us work ourselves uh, deeper into a functional relationship with Jesus Christ. Work is probably the wrong word to, to, to use there. To direct us into a functional relationship with Jesus Christ by keeping us away from those things which will strip from us fellowship with him. Namely, the corruption of the world. And so religion functions to direct us unto helping the weak, the vulnerable, and the innocent. And religion functions to help us stay unspotted from the world, to live in proper biblical separation from the world, the flesh, and the devil, from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so these are means within our lives, frameworks that we erect in our lives, standards that we put into our lives, fences that we build in our lives as a means which to help facilitate a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion is not a bad thing, Christian. Religion just needs to be in its proper place. And if either one of these purposes becomes an end unto itself, if I pursue these religious distinctives for their own sake, rather than in submission to a relational effort with my Savior Jesus Christ I still do very much good in the world indeed most religious systems in the world with a few notable exceptions embody these efforts to one degree or another and so do much good in this world they do much good in this world but if religion is an end unto itself it does no good for the world to come because it then becomes a meritorious work rather than a relational work it is then about me rather than about directing me to Christ. When religion becomes an end unto itself, it becomes an idol. It becomes a false god erected in the heart of a man as a replacement for a relationship with the true and living God. And again, this does not change the fact that that person, that religious person, will most certainly be benefited by his religious devotion. Of course, Benefit. there will be benefits to religious devotion. It does not change the fact that society will be benefited by those who are religiously devout. Societies are benefited by those who are religiously devout. But the man who has elevated religion to the place of God in his life is an idolater. And on the day when the gospel of Jesus Christ shines unto such a man... It is often the case, as we have seen, at least within the course of Mark uh, chapters one through four, that when the gospel shines to the man who has elevated religion to be his God, who is idolatrous toward religion itself, that man becomes offended at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that man becomes offended at the gospel of Jesus Christ is because the gospel tells us that we are saved and we are sanctified by no merit of our own. And the man who elevates religion as his God, who is not using religion as a framework to draw him under a relationship with Jesus Christ, but is rather using religion as the means by which to be right, is the man who is seeking through his merit to be right with God. And the religious idolater cannot abide the idea that all of his efforts in service to this God, which is religion, mind you, not to Jehovah, not to Jesus Christ, but this service to religion, which he might call Jehovah, or he might call Jesus, or he might call by any other number of names, but which is in fact him serving the God of religion himself, a God that is formed in his own image, that is wrapped around his own capacities and his own thoughts and his own ideas of what is best, That man balks at the idea that his service to God is not meritorious, that his efforts in service to God cannot in and of themselves make him right with God. But that any man and all men who come to God in humility and faith can by grace through faith be made right with God. And this is what we've seen in Mark and this is what we see in all the Gospels. To this point, the religious have all been religious idolaters. Offended at the gospel of the kingdom, which would condescend to men of low estate. Offended at the great leveling power of Christ, which gives these men no great praise for their carnal and fleshly efforts. Which look at these men and all of their self-righteousness and reject it outright, because it is in fact that very thing, self-righteousness. And instead seek for those who are willing to have faith. And it is Jairus who first indicates to us in the book of Mark that the problem wasn't religion itself, but rather the elevation of religion beyond its due. Overextending religion in its value and taking it out of its proper place. So Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. Jairus is a man who is, who, who is religiously devout, no, no question. And he comes to Jesus, the Bible says, right as Jesus is getting off of that boat, and he falls at Jesus' feet. And the reason why is because Jairus has a daughter. And we'll learn a little bit later in the text that, that, that his daughter is 12 years old. And she was at the point of death, the scriptures tell us, that she lieth at the point of death. And so Jairus said, I pray thee to Jesus, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. Now we know that this man is in an emotional state of grief. And perhaps we might assume that he is in some place of desperation. That would be an assumption, not necessarily a certainty. Perhaps it was that this man was not necessarily in a place of desperation. Perhaps it was that this man was truly in a place of confidence. It's possible that this man had not thought much of Jesus until such time as his daughter got sick. Maybe until that time he was on board with what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to say, what the scribes had to say. Maybe he was just as disinterested as anyone else in what was happening with Jesus as it related to him, and and, and, and feeling as though he was false until such time as he realizes that he has tried everything for his daughter and nothing has worked, and now he needs the help of someone, and he goes to Jesus. Possible. But it's also possible that Jairus had already believed. It's also possible that the day his daughter got sick, he said, I need Jesus. Only it happens that Jesus is over in Gadara. And he's not quite where he needs to be for Jairus to be able to uh, uh, get the help he needs on this day until Jesus returns. And then he finds himself in a place where he can petition his Lord. Either way, however, he comes to Jesus and he asks that Jesus would lay his hands on his daughter and that might through it be healed, and she might live. There is no qualification there. It seems as though this man, again, either through desperation or through uh, direct faith, uh, is is absolutely willing to believe that Jesus can do this thing for him. Verse 24. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. So Jesus goes with Jairus, and of course the people follow him, they surround him, they throng him as he went. And within this text not just in uh, Mark, but also in Matthew and in Luke, there is an event, as I've said, that takes place along this journey. And we're going to talk about that event next week where a woman with an issue of blood interacts with Jesus. There's enough to be, there's definitely overlapping of themes between what Jesus is doing for Jairus uh, and what Jesus uh, will do for the woman with the issue of blood. Uh, there's overlapping of themes, but there's plenty to talk about on each of these accounts to where I'm going to go ahead and separate them into two accounts, and we'll just talk about the rest of that next week, which is why our, our passage is, is split in two. So we have through verse 24, and then now we're going to skip to verse 35 and continue reading after Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood. So we read in verse 35, While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? So Jesus is speaking to the woman with the issue of blood. He does so... um, and then as as he turns now to continue along the way with Jairus, someone from Jairus' house comes to them and announces that the girl is dead. And they say, Don't trouble the master anymore. There's nothing more that can be done, right? It's too late now. The girl is dead. So Jesus hears these words and we read then in verse 36. As soon as as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Now this is almost startling in its simplicity. Be not afraid, only believe. But this is not startling for one who's been reading the book of Mark. This is what Jesus said to the disciples. Why were you afraid? Why didn't you have faith in the boat? This is, what Jesus, this is why Jesus responded to the people that lowered the man sick of the palsy. When he saw their faith, he said, man, arise. And so Jesus says, be not afraid, only believe. See, the thing which Jairus feared the most that had just happened... He had asked Jesus to come in order that his daughter might not die. There was an urgency upon him in order that his daughter might not die, and now she was dead. And again, we have absolutely no insight into what Jairus was or was not thinking here, but by most measures and among most people, the point of death would certainly be that point of no return. That was the thing that Jairus needed to not happen. That was why he needed Jesus quickly enough so that he could lay his hands on this girl and so that she could be healed before she died. And yet Jesus hears that this girl has died and his disposition does not change. And he exhorts Jairus not to change in his disposition either. Jairus, you had enough confidence to come to me and to say that if I would lay my hands on her, that she would be healed. Why does your confidence have to change just because these people said she's dead? Be not afraid. Only believe. And this is a level of authority which we might see as beyond our reckoning. We have seen Jesus heal, many at this point. We have seen Jesus cast out demons, several at this point. We have even seen the elements of nature bow to Jesus' will as he stilled the wind and the waves. But death is the final enemy. Death is the great line of demarcation. In the healing of diseases and the casting out of demons, Jesus showed an authority over those things, which we can at least reckon our minds to understanding a reversal of, right? We've seen people healed through natural causes, so our mind can reckon the idea that Jesus comes and speeds up the process. We, we can even see the various ways in which demons have been able to be uh, cast out or demons have been able to be dealt with among men so that the idea that Jesus came and sped up the process is maybe something not outside of our reckoning. Even as it relates to the winds and the waves, it's certainly not something where we see people be able to control the weather. But at the very least, we recognize how technology today has allowed us to mitigate weather disasters to a great degree. And so we might not necessarily uh, be... Uh, in a place where when we hear that Jesus stilled the wind and the waves, where where we are absolutely outside of any sort of context of clarity or of of an ability to to reckon what's happening there. But this, Jairus' daughter, represents an entirely new level of authority. Authority over the physical, we've seen it. Authority over the spiritual, yep. Authority over the natural, uh uh-huh. And now authority over the most final thing within the context of man's man's reference. Authority over death itself. And notice once again the division in the text between these two great ideas of fear and faith. We talked about that when we were talking about the disciples in the boat. Fear and faith. Faith drives away fear. Fear drives away faith. So Jesus says to Jairus, be not afraid, only believe. And here Jesus exhorts Jairus to live in that place of faith, in that place of belief, and to deny the temptation thus to be fearful. Verses 37 and 38. And he suffered no man to follow him save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. So from this point on, Jesus leaves the nine disciples, uh, leaves nine of them, presumably uh, along with the crowd, because it doesn't seem as though the crowd follows, and he invites only Peter, James, and John to follow him. This is common within Jesus's ministry. This is The only time that we see uh, this this division of these three particular, which are often considered Jesus's inner circle, if you would. Uh, These three men were also with Jesus to witness the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. These three men were also deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, although uh, Jesus left the twelve and he took the three and then he left the three and he went a little deeper himself. Uh, but Peter, James, and John. And I don't know if these guys were all narcoleptics or what, but they all tend to fall asleep through all of these events, right? Uh, We don't see them sleeping in this particular event uh, like they did at the Transfiguration, like they did in the garden. Um, But either way, um, Jesus likes to hang around these guys. So these three men follow him into the house. And they come into the house, and the Bible says there was there what he calls a tumult. This word meaning a disturbance. And this came, the Bible says, from them that wept and wailed greatly. Having mourners after the death of a loved one was a cultural hallmark, not just of the Jews of this time, but of both Jew and Gentile of this time. Uh, there would be times where this would be family members who would be weeping and wailing in a very, very overt way. Uh, there were even, at various times, what we might call professional mourners, where they would hire people to come, or, or there would be people. Within the, the 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 towns and the cities that were designated as mourners, and they would come specifically for the time after death, and they would uh, weep and they would wail very loudly and very overtly as a means by which to express a, a, a form of, of 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 sorrow and and also of, of empathy for the family and and to 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 move ahead the process of grieving culturally. Now for us, there's another reason why it's important that we see that these mourners were there. For us, it's important that we know these mourners were there because that is what gives us validation that this girl was actually dead. If the mourners were there, if they were doing their thing, everybody knew she was dead. And that is very important that she's verifiably dead because of how Jesus is going to interact with, with, with uh, the family in the next verses. So we read in verses 39 and 40. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, why make ye this ado and weep? So he goes up to the mourners and he says, why, why, are you, why all the tumult? why all the weeping? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, "...he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying." So Jesus enters into the property, whether that's the house or the court, uh, we don't know. And he asks them why they're making such a to-do, why they are weeping. He says, because the damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now, it's worth noting here that the Greek word used by Jesus as it relates to this this, this word dead, or excuse me, the word sleepeth, uh, the Greek word used is not the same word in John 11, verse 11, when Jesus said that Lazarus sleepeth, sleepeth. And by this, the disciples, of course, were encouraged. When Jesus said, Lazarus is sleeping, the disciples say, oh, good. It's good that he's sleeping. He needs his rest. And then Jesus had to clarify, Lazarus is dead. This is a different word here. And while we might imagine that the statement, so-and-so sleepeth, was a, a polite way to express death in the Jewish language, in the same way that we use the, the idea of somebody passed away or went home to glory or departed this earth or whatever it might be, there's no doubt here that Jesus is not playing games with words. When Jesus said, Lazarus sleepeth, the, the disciples, even though they were very, you know, obviously in that culture, culturally connected, the way Jesus said it, the word he used, they did not necessarily immediately connect it to the idea that Lazarus was dead. Here there is no ambiguity. Not the same word. It's a different word for sleepeth. And he, 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 he specifically says here, the damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. He paints a contrast. There's no doubt that Jesus was saying she is not dead. And this is curious because she is dead. So why would Jesus say she's not dead? Why would he say she's sleeping? Now the point here is not that Jesus was seeking to imply that she wasn't dead in the physical sense. Only rather that he might change the perspective of the onlookers related to exactly what death is. The natural mindset of man sees death as the essence of finality, the last thing, the end. But what Jesus was attempting to express here is that There is no end when the one who is the way, the truth, and the life is with you. That he is life itself. And if life itself is with you, then there is no end. Physically, death is not the final snuffing out of existence, is it? Physical death is only a transition of existence from one plane to another. All death, in this sense, is sleep. Because all who are dead will awake. Some will awaken to eternal life. Some will awaken to a second death. But all will awake in the last day. And this is what Jesus was emphasizing here. And by this same note, it's important to state that Jesus' words here are not intended to imply that when a person dies, his soul goes to sleep waiting for a judgment. That is a theory or a, a doctrine that is called the doctrine of soul sleep. And the idea of the doctrine of soul sleep is that when a person dies, their soul goes into a a state whereby they are effectively asleep until the day of the resurrection or until the day of judgment. And this is not something that we see to be consistent with what the Bible teaches us as it relates to what happens to a man when he dies. It is not that we, we, we when we our souls go to sleep and it's very similar the, the way that they describe it is it's very similar to us going to sleep at night and you don't really reckon time if you have a good night of sleep right you fall asleep at 10 o'clock and you wake up at six and it is as if no time passed right you just go to sleep and you wake up if you had a really solid night of rest I don't know how many of us anymore can necessarily connect to that the kids can connect to that at least right uh, the idea that you you're out and then you up and then and then and then it's, it's, it's time to terrorize life again. Uh, but, um, but 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 that, that idea is the idea that some some think of the soul, but that's not really what we see. And we don't have a, a tremendous amount of insight into this, but we do have a little bit, right? We do have Jesus's account of the rich man and Lazarus. Some believe it to be a parable, others believe it not to be a parable. One way or another, as Jesus Christ describes this idea, he speaks of the rich man and Lazarus, they both die, and they immediately go to a different place, where Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and the rich man is in hell is in a place of fire and of burning. We also think of Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul speaks of the desire leave this mortal body, because in doing so, in leaving this mortal body, we get to be present with the Lord. To this end, we need not attempt to infer that when Jesus said the young girl was sleeping, that he was somehow trying to lend credence to the idea of soul sleep. That he is attempting to make some sort of direct doctoral statement as it relates to what the afterlife looks like. That, that, that doesn't really, it's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, he is using the idea of sleep as opposed to death to paint the contrast between something that is an end and something that is not at an end. Something that is final and something that is not final. And death would be final if there were not a God who is life. But there is a God who is life and that God who is life happened to be standing right in front of the house of this girl who is dead. Therefore, there's certainly no finality in it. Jesus seeks to demonstrate, thus, his authority. Not just as the one with the power to heal. Not just as the one with the power over the spiritual to cast out demons. Not just with the one, uh, the one who has the power over the winds and the waves. But the one who is life itself and so has power over life and over death. So after being laughed to scorn, the Bible says Jesus takes the father and mother of the girl, along with others of consequence. Uh, The other gods seem to imply that this was not Peter, James, and John, uh, but but, um, there's a little bit of ambiguity in this text. And they enter into the place where the dead child was. So we continue. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, And she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given to her to eat. So Jesus takes the girl's hand. He speaks in Aramaic, translated into the Greek. It means damsel, I say, unto thee, arise. And the Bible says immediately the girl arises, and she walks. And everyone, understandably, is amazed. Here, Jairus thought that he had a time limit, that he needed to hurry, that he needed to get Jesus there quickly because the damsel was sick. And then she dies, and there's no hope. But Jesus says, there is hope. Don't be afraid, but believe. And then they get there, and Jesus just raises this girl from the dead. And she walks, and she talks. And Jesus then did what he regularly does. He commands them that no man should know what has happened. And we've already talked about why we believe this is. Primarily because Jesus is inhibited in his capacity to teach and to preach when people are thronging him because of his miracles. And then after he commands them that they should not tell people what had happened there, he gets very practical and he commands them to get this poor girl something to eat. And so passes this event of monumental importance, a demonstration of absolute authority, the greatest yet that we have seen from Jesus Christ, but of course not the greatest that we will see. For Jesus in this day raised another from the dead. Of course the greatest act of his authority will be on the day that he raises himself from the dead. Now let's think through a few applications this evening. Application number one. Don't despise the pains of life. Jairus was going through a hard time. Jairus was in a place of fear. In a place of vulnerability. The human condition is full of these, aren't they? The human condition is full of troubles, pains, trials. Difficulties, each one just as unpleasant as the one that came before. By their very nature, the things of this life are not easy. It's not easy to witness much less experienced pain, sorrow, loss. And yet what we find as a consistent reality of the human experience is that trouble and pain, while never fun, often become a source of good things. At the very least, they become a source of perspective. How can I know what happiness is apart from a contrast with those days of sadness? How can I know what comfort is if I do not know what discomfort is? How can I know peace if I have not known fear? So that by its very nature, the human experience compels us to recognize that it is only in the ability to relate to bad things that I can have any truly, true appreciation for the good things that I might seek and know. Jesus said, the one that sins much loves much. That does not mean that we seek out sin, but we also recognize that those who have been in the depths of sin know better what it is to be redeemed. But this is the simple Application to this idea, don't despise the pains of life. This is the for- that's the that's that's fortune cookie idea. That's the kind of idea that you'd also find uh, outside of just biblical Christianity as it relates to not despising the pains of life. But in Christ, there's something far greater than that, isn't there? In Christ, these points of pain and these points of sorrow and these points of suffering not only give us a perspective by which we can know happiness and know wellness no contentment, that's, again, that's 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 a very surface-level idea of not despising the pains of life. It's, it's fine, it's good. But as we step into Christ, the relationship with Christ, it gets deeper. Those points of life often become the catalyst for times of yieldedness and obedience, don't they? Those pain points... Those points of vulnerability, those points of sorrow, those points of fear, that when we can take those pain points, the sorrow, the fear, and the vulnerability, and we can cast our cares upon Christ, as we memorized last month, for he careth for you, it is in that moment that we find true growth, isn't it? It is as God prunes us back that we can grow back all the fuller. If I may put it another way, It often takes dramatic difficulties for our stubborn human hearts to be willing to submit to God's way, to grow in God's path. God often must bring us through pains and trials and suffering to get to the end of ourselves, mustn't we? Be nice if it weren't this way. And to whatever degree we have the humility to submit ourselves in wisdom to God and to his plan, to that degree we can avoid perhaps some of those pain points. Perhaps not. But as we look at the testimony of Scripture, whether we go to Job and see what God did to Job, where Job announces on the day, he knoweth the path that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Or whether it be, David writing in Psalm 1, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We find that oftentimes God must bring us through pain, trial, and suffering to get us to the place of faith, confidence, and rest. Before we're willing to walk with him. Before we're able to see and to understand him the way he wants us to see and understand him. To know him through the fellowship of his suffering. Most of us are well familiar with the principle presented in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, Neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. It is not just times of suffering, it is even times of correction. Not every time where the Lord brings suffering into our lives, does he bring it into our lives as a correction? Indeed, what does John 15 tell us? He that bringeth forth fruit, he purges, that, uh, he, that he may bring forth more fruit. And so we recognize that even among those who are bearing much fruit for the Lord, he is going to purge us that we might bring forth more. But we also see this exhortation. Experience as believers. We can be confident in our relationship with our loving Father who, uh, and who thus can be consoled that even when God must correct us, chasten us, push us forward, train us, He is doing so for our best good. I correct my children because I love my children. I correct my children because if I don't correct my children, then they're not going to become everything they ought to be. Those pain points, those difficulties, those times of sorrow, those times of frustration, those times where they're they're not happy, those are integral times to getting them to the point where they can be happy in the long run those points of difficulty, those times where I push my children to excel, where they're frustrated and they're crying or whatever it might be, where they're stacking wood for the umpteenth time and their body tired, where they're still sitting there having to do just one more math lesson even though they're, they're frustrated, where they've, they've tried and they've failed and they've tried and they've failed and Daddy says, nope, you've got to try it again. Those are unpleasant points for them. But those are the points that grow them. That help them. And with Jairus, as we've said, we have very little, to no insight into his thinking. We don't know whether or not he was a man who was already convinced of Jesus' identity or whether at this moment he was desperate and he turned to Jesus irrespective of his personal feelings for him. But in reality, it, it doesn't matter. Because either way, this man's fears, his troubles, His difficulties drove him to a point of faith, to a crossroads. To a crossroads that he may never have crossed any other way. Would he consent to Jesus' lordship or power? Would he harden his heart and seek another way to save his daughter's life? And this is not a simple question. We might think it's a simple question. We might say, "Well, yeah, and, you know, Jesus is there healing people. Of course, of course, Jairus would go to him. Even if even, even if Jairus wasn't fully convinced, of course he would go to him. Do you really need to exercise that much faith when there's a healer around?" Well, we say that, except that that's not what we actually see when we see the interaction with the people of the land, do we? If that were the case, if it were just, well, of course he would do that. This this guy standing right in front of him, who wouldn't do that in that moment? Well, if it were the case that the people that saw it would just have to acknowledge its veracity, have to acknowledge its power, well, then we would have expected that the Pharisees, when they watched the man get healed, his withered hand get healed, that they would have believed. But they didn't. Why? If this were the case, we would have believed that when that man that was sick of the palsy was lowered in that bed through the roof, And then Jesus, seeing the faith, said, Man arise, and he arose that they would believe. They didn't. Why not? Because they said, This man casts out devils by the prince of devils. This man is doing this work in wickedness and in evil. And Jairus comes to a crossroad, and he could have very easily said that same thing. I'm not going to go to that man to have his demonic power do anything for my daughter. I'm going to do it a different way. But he didn't. He believed. He was brought to a crossroads and that crossroads compelled him to a choice and he made the choice to exercise faith in the living Savior. Not every demonstration of God's power, not every instance of trial or tribulation compels a man to relent to the character and power of God. And yet every man who has been brought to that crossroads and has through trials and tribulations been compelled to trust Jesus, has grown from that experience. Has learned to be ever thankful for those difficult and vulnerable times in his life because it is those times where we are driven to trust Christ in ways that we never otherwise would have ever been asked to trust him. To that end, Christian, don't despise those pains of life. Align yourself properly with them. See them as the opportunity that they are to unfold into Christ in a brand new way. To yield to Christ just a little bit more. To give him a little more. To trust him a little more. To love him a little more. To be a little more thankful for the things he's done for you. Don't despise the pain points of life. Two, be not afraid, only believe. We find once again this lesson which we first considered when Jesus stilled the storms in Mark 4. We said there that there is such a thing as faithful fear, a faith-filled fear, which is better understood as a reverent submission to the person and work of Christ. That's a good thing. But we're not talking about that. We're talking the kind of fear that Jesus is talking about with Jairus is the same kind of fear he was talking about with the disciples. This is a circumstantial fear. This is the fear that is the enemy of faith. Where this fear exists, faith is driven from one's heart. And on this day, one might imagine that there was much for Jairus to fear. His daughter was sick. Jesus was away over in Decapolis. And when he finally returned, his daughter was in a desperate condition. And then eventually his daughter dies. And the lesson here is very clear though not made clear until we see Jesus take that girl by the hand and raise her from the dead, the lesson being this. If the wind and the waves cannot contend against the authority of Christ, and if death itself cannot contend against the authority of Christ, then truly the only thing I need fear in heaven or upon earth is Christ himself. And if his yoke is easy and his burden is light, So that he says, come unto me, all ye that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then there is truly nothing to fear. I need not entertain circumstantial fear in my life, Christian. Because I serve a Savior who is above all circumstances. If I'm going to fear... May my heart simply well up with faithful fear. May I fear placing myself at odds with my Savior. May I fear falling out of fellowship with him fear walking in the darkness rather than in the light. May I fear my own heart. May I fear the sin and rebellion that I am compelled unto by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The the rebellion within me that, when indulged, separates me from the Spirit of God. May I fear not being a fruit-bearing Christian. May I fear that when I have preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. May I fear, as Matthew says in Matthew 10, verse 28, not them which kill the body, And are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. May I not fear what man can do unto me. May I not fear the afflictions of a sin ravaged world through illness, through injury, through poverty, through scorn. And in this faithful fear... That Matthew 10 calls us unto, may I live in obedience. And as I live in obedience, then my soul can echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do unto me. And I can have this confidence. Why? Well expressed in Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. And delivereth them. And may we live in this place where I do not live in fear, I instead live in faith. Three, it is not death to die. There's coming a resurrection, Christian. And the coming resurrection is for all men great or small, strong or weak, rich or poor as Daniel was given a vision to see the end of days. He wrote this in Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, since there was a nation even uh, to that same time. And at every one, uh, excuse me, yes, and at every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now we're talking about a very particular time in history. This is not the only time of any sort of a resurrection, which is why the Bible says many will awake and not all, because there's a couple of different resurrections. But notice here that within this resurrection, it says that some will awake to everlasting life and some will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. There is a resurrection of the just and there is a resurrection of the unjust. But make make no mistake, you and I, along with every man, woman, and child who has ever lived will live again, will experience a resurrection. Even as we already considered in Jesus' words in Matthew 10, we fear not he who can only kill the body for that is only a temporal vessel that we inherit. Before entering into the timeless eternity, we fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. The consequence of the first death is that at this death, the Bible tells us we are confirmed in our disposition toward Christ. So that Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, as an appointed, man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. Humanity gets one death before the judgment, and after that death, the next stop is the resurrection. Then the judgment, and then on judgment day, there's only one of two destinations. And those two destinations are well expressed in Revelation 20, verses 13 to 15. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This judgment speaks of a day when men will stand before God and they will be judged for their works. This is what we would consider the great white throne of judgment, particularly judging those who have not been found in the book of life. And the Bible says all death and hell is cast in the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is called the second death. And all those that were not found written in the book of life, which we understand to be those who have rejected the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross experience a second death. There is a first death for all men, save a raptured generation. And then there is either eternal life or second death. And that death is the final death. That death is the one from which no man returns. That's eternal separation from God. It is not an abolishment. It is not a ceasing to exist. It is an eternal place of conscious torment as the Bible speaks to it. Imposed upon all those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And that is the true day of death for those whose names are not written in the book of life. And that leads us to our final point. The power over death and life rests with Jesus alone. On this day in Mark 5, Jesus demonstrates the physical power which carries into the spirit realm as well. On this day, Jesus showed that he holds power over death and over life. And I said already, this is a historical account with a historical man named Jairus and a historical man named Jesus doing historical things, things that could be validated, and we know that be validated because they gave the name of the guy and they gave his position in the city so that people could easily go back and figure out who this guy is and validate the account. And we don't have any historical account saying, I went and looked for that Gyrus guy and he didn't exist. We don't have one of those. So we know that this is, this is a real account, but we also recognize here that there's something much bigger going on as to what Mark is trying to teach us. What Mark is trying to teach us is the authority of Jesus Christ is the An authority which began by showing us He had power to heal. Then that He had power over the spiritual to cast out demons. Then He had power over the winds and the waves, but also that He has power over death and life. If any man is to avoid the second death, then... If any man is to be spared from the eternal separation from God that our sin warrants for us, it can and will only ever be through the only one who has authority over death and life. The only one unto whom all power is given in heaven and earth. And any normal man might demand that another would earn that favor for themselves." Any normal man would demand that if that normal man had power over life and death, that he would use that as a cudgel to wield by which to get people to do what he wanted them to do. A normal man might only give that power, that ability unto eternal life to those who could merit it, but not our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ did not extend this offer only to those who could merit it, or at all to those who could merit it. But rather, he extended that offer to all men, whosoever would believe, whosoever would acknowledge that he cannot save himself, whosoever would fall down at the feet of Jesus and acknowledge that only he has power over life and death, and ask Jesus to give him life. Acknowledging that nothing else in the world can give him life but Jesus Christ himself. That no amount of merit, no amount of effort, no amount of works, no amount of religious zeal, no, no amount of church attendance, no amount of money, no, no, no baptism, no, 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 nothing of meritorious effort can possibly get me to that place of life but only the gift of Jesus Christ alone. Only Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I must come to the one who has power over life and death, and I must receive it on his terms, or not at all. And that man who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, shall be saved. And this is the final lesson that we learn from what Jesus did with the young girl on this day. That as we have contemplated Jesus' authority over all things in Mark, we find in Mark 5 that this authority extends even unto the authority over death and life itself. On the day where that book opened, called the Lamb's Book of Life, the names that are written in that book are written on the authority of Jesus Christ. So that as Jesus had power over death in the physical, in the temporal, Jesus too has power over death in the spiritual. So that if we run to Christ and place ourselves under his mighty hand, if we will not be fearful but only believe, then we will find in him a Savior who is willing to raise us up on the last day. Not unto shame and everlasting contempt, but unto everlasting life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.